Elias Grohl, thanks for coming back on Safe Mode. Where are you joining us from today? My pleasure. I'm in Stockholm, Sweden right now. You've had quite the journey over the past couple of months. Where all have you been? I was in Nova Scotia for a wedding. I was in London for a few days. I was in Oxford, England for another wedding. And then I was in Paris for a couple of days. And then I was in a country house in the Auvergne region of France. And then I had lunch in Lyon. Oh, and then wow. I got on a and then I got on a plane and I went to Stockholm where I've been working remotely. Amazing. Any highlights or what was your favorite part? What was the highlight? Nova Scotia was amazing. Nova Scotia's beautiful, lovely people. I had a beautiful lobster roll by a quaint tiny little lighthouse in a fishing village. All the food in France was incredible. I ate pigeon that was delicious. I ate a hockey-sized puck of foie gras atop Amazing. artichoke in Lyon. It was disgusting. The foie gras part or the artichoke yeah, it was, part? Yeah, it was absolutely. I don't. It was. Uh, it was absolutely disgusting. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. It was terrible. I bought amazing bread from a drunk baker out of his car at eleven in the morning. He took out a giant loaf of bread that was probably four feet long and just kind of carved a hunk off of it for us. Then realized he'd forgotten his keys because he'd been drinking all morning at the market. We should do a food podcast as our next, you know, maybe as a side thing. Yeah, everyone would love that. Yeah, that would be awesome. I know your traveling is going to continue. You're coming back to the States soon and you're going to Las Vegas. And that is what we're going to be talking about in this episode of Safe Mode. We're going to talk about Las Vegas, two huge cybersecurity conferences, one called Black Hat, the other called DEF CON. They're at the same place, same city, at different hotels. They're very different conferences. You're going to be there for a bit. It's going to be extremely hot because it's August and it's Las Vegas. But you're going to give us a preview of what we can expect from Black Hat and DEF CON and all the interesting people you are going to be meeting and the cool stuff you're going to be seeing. And also on this episode, we are going to talk to Sean Vitka, who's with a group called Demand Progress. And he has been really working very hard on issues around Section 702 of the FISA Act, which we've been writing about a lot at CyberScoop. And he's going to tell us what that's all about and why it really matters and what's happening in Congress. Welcome to Safe Mode. I'm Mike Farrell, Editor-in-Chief at CyberScoop. Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. This episode is brought to you by Google Cloud. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. Elias Grohl, Senior Editor at CyberScoop. You are about ready to launch an amazing new voyage to Las Vegas, a great (laughs) city, I think, to spend 48 hours in. But you're going to be there for much longer. I'm going to be there for six days. It's a lot. That's a lot for Las Vegas. I somewhat pity you, but I'm also a little jealous because you are going to two really great conferences. And really, I think the most interesting one is a hacker conference called DEF CON. It's been going on for a long time. It's famous for 
It's hijinks sometimes. A lot of craziness happens there. It brings hackers from around the world to a big hotel in Las Vegas. Tell us about this conference and what you expect from it, what you're interested in, and what are you looking forward to most there? So I think one of the big things that this year's DEF CON is going to be the, the AI theme. Everyone in tech world writ large right now is obsessing over AI, and in particular, generative AI. And it's being used in cybersecurity contexts. We did a big piece on that a couple months ago that we'll link to in the show notes, where basically the idea is that cybersecurity analysts are going to be able to use generative AI systems to augment their analysis or like put a piece of malicious code into a generative AI system and it'll spit out an answer to say, this is what this code is doing. But what we've seen less of, I think, is attempts to try to break the AI models. At this year's DEF CON, there's going to be a big generative AI red teaming exercise. Interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. And So hacking AI, basically. Exactly. Hacking AI, which there's growing recognition that AI systems have the same types or similar types of security vulnerabilities as any other piece of software, right? But given how new some of these generative AI applications are, this is still a fairly unexplored field. But you know, some of the stuff is you know, well known to folks in cybersecurity world, right? Like just like you could do, you know, a prompt injection on a web form, you can also potentially do a prompt injection attack on ChatGPT and have it spit out user data belonging to other clients of OpenAI potentially, right? or have it do a prompt injection that allows you to bypass uh, security measures, for example. This is a very active area of research within AI safety world right now. And so there's going to be this big AI hacking exercise at DEF CON, and it's going to bring just a huge amount of hacker brain power to bear on the problem of how we break into AI systems. And just like in, in previous years, I mean, the, the research that happens at DEF CON, one, it, you know, the companies themselves that are creating this technology are participating. So I think like at least OpenAI and others are sort of giving their technology over to the hackers. They say, here, try to break this so we can fix it. This year also, which I think is going to be really interesting, is this Hackasat competition where you have hackers trying to hack a real satellite that's in space in order to figure out, okay, what are the bugs? What are the flaws? You know, how do we fix these things? And, you know, the things that hackers have done there in the past around election security and other sorts of things have been really influential. Do you expect to see that same kind of influence this year coming out of what's, what's achieved on OpenAI or some of the other things that are going to be happening? I think this is going to be a really big moment for realizing just how big of a problem potentially security vulnerabilities are in AI models. We're starting to see now more and more research attacking large language models. And as folks start looking at this problem more and more, it's clear that there are major vulnerabilities out there. And what some folks within the cybersecurity community argue increasingly is that amid the excitement to build these large language models, these chatbots, there hasn't been the amount of attention paid to just like ordinary rote cybersecurity lessons from the last 20 years. So 
basic kind of like prompt injection attacks or basic thinking about, you know, where to place your security controls. And at this year's DEF CON, with the amount of attention and hackers working on attacking these models, I think we're going to get a better sense of just how bad these vulnerabilities are. And the models that they're going to be attacking at this conference, they're the big ones. Anthropic is going to be there, Google, Hugging Face, Microsoft, OpenAI, Stability AI. These are the companies that are responsible for the so-called leading edge models. And they're also companies that have made major commitments to the security of their models. And so this is going to be the big test, I think, for whether those security commitments can survive major scrutiny and sustained attack. Yeah, I mean, it'll be really interesting both to see the outcome of what they find, but also to be there in person kind of watching some of this happen in real time. And that's the cool thing about being at DEF CON, seeing people either hack an AI model, but there are also like physical things that are there as well, like car hacking, for instance, is a big thing. Election hacking, where you know you bring in a voting machine and you have all the hackers sort of go at it and see how they can manipulate it in different sorts of ways. Are there other things that you're looking forward to seeing in person while you're there in Vegas? I mean, yeah, I think, I think the other one that I'm really excited about and, and is going to generate a lot of attention is the hack is hack competition that you mentioned, which I think is worth mentioning. You know, ahead of this conference, NASA and the organizers of DEF CON have put a satellite into space that is going to be hacked at DEF CON. And that's, it's never, there's, there have been so-called hack a competitions before, you know, where hackers attack a virtual model of a satellite. But this year, there's going to be a real satellite in space that hackers at this conference are going to be going after. It's a CubeSat. It was launched atop a SpaceX model just a couple months ago. The CubeSat has a name. It's called Moonlighter. Satellite companies are, they're good at building these rugged systems that can survive in space and can withstand the radiation of the sun's rays and all of these things. But they don't have that history of having to withstand cyber attacks, attempts to hack them. And as satellite systems become more popular, as satellite internet becomes far more ubiquitous, attacking satellite systems is a bit of a frontier. And... At DEF CON, we're going to get to see attempts to hack satellites for real. And I think that's going to be very exciting and interesting to see exactly how that goes. And again, like the AI models, how vulnerable this frontier technology is to cyber attack. That's awesome. So you'll be out there. Well, when the podcast airs, it'll be this week. It's August 10 to the 13. You're going to be with our colleague, Christian Vasquez, who's also going to be writing about a lot of these things. I mean, I think that it will be fantastic to see, you know, to be following what you're seeing out there. So we can follow along on Twitter, of course, on cyberscoop.com to see what you're writing about. And then also, you know, maybe after DEF CON, you'll come back and give us the highlights, which I hope will also include some instances of bumping into a furry or two and maybe drinking a shot of Malort, which are, you know, also notable things at DEF CON. I love my lord. So yeah, I'll be happy to do that. Yeah. Well, I think you're the only one because <laughs> it's disgusting. All right. Well, have fun in Las Vegas and we'll Thanks, talk to Mike. you when you get back. Next up, we are going to get into it with Sean Vitka. 
who's going to update us on the surveillance debate that's happening in Washington. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Google. Do you want to protect your agency and data from the most sophisticated cyber attacks? Visit cloud.google.com slash security to access resources and expertise to get started today. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for coming on this podcast. It's brand new. It's already my favorite cybersecurity podcast. I hope it will be yours one day, too. Thank you for having me. I think it's at least currently my favorite named podcast. We appreciate that. Uh, there was a big debate. One of the names was Bite Me, which that had, you know. I know I, know I knew that, but it's still science. funny. Yeah, it is funny. Well, that one didn't make it. I'm trying to think what were the other contenders. But I think safe mode was always the, the natural choice. Uh, it's not taken. Mike, you have a, a way with these terms Naming of things? Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. For, for those who don't know, there's, there's cyber tacos is like a long... Anyway. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. I, I was involved with the origin of cyber tacos, passcode. Passcode was excellent. Yeah. Passcode. Read me. Anyways, we're not here to talk about that. We've known each other for a long time. I know you from policy work in tech and beers at Lyman's, but want to also talk about what's going on. One of the big things you're focused on now is section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that sunsets this year. I know that's taking up a ton of your time, but first I want you to give our listeners an overview of what demand progress is for those that don't know and what are the sorts of things that you guys work on. Thank you. So, so Demand Progress is a net roots kind of grassroots group. We have over a million affiliated activists who are people who call Congress or sign on to petitions or take other actions in the interest really of protecting the internet in so many ways. And so Demand Progress's mandate is to challenge a concentration of power that threatens the democratic nature of the internet, which goes all the way back to one of our co-founders, Aaron Schwartz. The significance of Section 702 is hard to overstate. The rest of this year has maybe three bills that need a vote in Congress. A, a lot of folks may not know that getting the vote is often the hardest part of a given legislative fight. Mike, like you said, the Section 702 of FISA, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, is set to expire at the end of the year on December 31st if Congress doesn't take other action. Now, the government considers this to be a crown jewel, the crown jewel of surveillance laws. And it's not the first time this has shown up in public debate. After the first thing that Edward Snowden revealed were a series of, frankly, even more alarming revelations that really focused on Section 702. So if you've ever heard the term PRISM or upstream, these are warrantless surveillance programs that in some cases are allow the government to scan the backbone of the internet as communications and other information are transiting to, again, warrantlessly scan for and pull out interesting, let's say, identifiers or communications to or from people that the government is, is interested in overseas in particular. So walk me through how a government agency would use 702. They're interested in investigating something. They use this authority. Walk me through what that looks like. Sure. So there are a lot of ways to look at Section 702. Often we're talking from kind of the end or almost aggregate effects because that's where some of the transparency is. So for instance, 
it's more it, it's it's likely that section 702 produces for the government for instance over a billion communications annually that is unlike any other surveillance law really but to reverse it and to to look at it from let's say an FBI agent's perspective it shows up in a couple of different ways the the most alarming is what i would start with which is that the FBI has for years taken the approach that when an agent is looking into somebody to even before an investigation has been started at what we call the assessment phase the agents were encouraged it was a routine practice is is the way the privacy and civil liberties oversight board described it back in the day to search all information to which the fbi had access and this included a slice of the section 702 information now this is where we we got to identify a really important facet here section 702 produces huge like i said likely over a billion communications a year the targets of section 702 surveillance must be non-us persons located overseas but where it gets extremely hairy and frankly dangerous for the privacy of everybody in the United States is that the FBI and other agencies like the NSA and CIA routinely search through this information looking for communications to, from, about people in the United States. And if the government were to try targeting those people for this surveillance at the front side, it wouldn't be allowed to use Section 702 because it's not a warrant-based authority. So, for instance, if I'm a UK citizen or if I'm somewhere in Europe, FBI is investigating me as part of a criminal investigation, they want to get my emails, right? So they then would use that authority to go to Google, Microsoft, say, okay, we need information about this guy and getting that possibly. But also they would be getting emails that I would be sending to US citizens. So that's where it comes, right? If I'm, am I explaining that? Yes. And, and crudely, it's, but accurately. No, that's a great explanation. So let's take this individual that you've described, right? So let's say that somebody in the UK, that person is going to communicate to any number of people, including people in the United States. The only thing the US government needs to do to target that person for surveillance is uh, assert to itself, basically, that the individual has foreign intelligence information, which could just be any information the government believes is relevant to the foreign affairs of the United States. It's it's about as broad of a definition as one could come up with. And just at that point, that reasoning, that individual, the identifiers that the government believes belong to that individual, none of those ever go in front of a judge or anybody outside of the executive branch. The only thing that a judge signs off on is the overarching purpose for which Section 702 is being used. Things like, for instance, counterespionage, which again is an extremely broad potential bucket. And then when you map this out, the government has about 250,000 Section 702 targets as of the last transparency reporting covering 2022. And Mike, let me just pause here for a second. Do you want the deep weeds or the less deep weeds? I, I defer to you. Let's go um, midweed. Midweed. Yeah, no, that, that's good. That works. So if we take this individual, right, and we imagine that maybe they have family in the United States, if we take these 250,000 different targets, they're going to have people that they're communicating with in the United States. You end up with a potentially staggering amount of information, again, to or from Americans that the government in every other context would need a warrant to look at. But further, we're talking about a scope here that is kind of incomprehensible. And that's actually why, just to do a quick detour into history, privacy advocates for for a decade have 
demanded the government provide an estimate on the number of Americans who are swept up as a consequence of this surveillance. And the government even promised this information, this estimate, to the House Committee on the Judiciary, and then walked that back, actually reneged on it in front of the Senate, which is kind of particularly bad form because they hadn't told the House. And we still, to this day, just have basically the government saying, we are just not going to tell you how many Americans, how many taxpayers, I was like, how do you want to, how broad do you want to cast this net, are reflected in this database, are captured, are affected. How many people's privacy has been invaded just by virtue of being sucked in through this very broad surveillance. And what we do get transparency-wise, I think, Mike, if, if we can spend another minute on in, in that direction, tells you a lot about what this looks like in terms of where the rubber hits the road. Because we now have instances, for instance, compliance violations that have been reported out reflecting unlawful searches of this information for people who are protesting after George Floyd's murder. We have unlawful queries for information about January 6th suspects. And we also have, frankly, a long list of other examples, but the most recent news, in addition to those two compliance problems, we know that the government also unlawfully searched this information for information about 19,000 congressional donors. And again, there's no warrant at the beginning of this process. This is what they call incidental collection is the impact on U.S. persons. Incidental does not mean accidental, by the way as may be obvious at this point, but there is also not requirement for the agents doing these searches to get a warrant before looking for these people. And that's where this becomes really alarming. And there's no there's no requirement to say, you know, once you, you've sucked up all this information, I imagine it's sitting in a database somewhere that you can filter out, okay, here's the U.S. citizens' data that goes into the trash. We just want to focus on our suspects' information there's no filtering or, or system like that in places there. Not really. So a lot of those protections that you're describing, well, one, a lot of them don't exist or they exist kind of only in name. There are other things that people have heard more about in recent years, things like masking and unmasking. So those processes exist for after intelligence is reviewed, if it's going to be shared further to agencies that aren't allowed to have access to what we call raw Section 702 or raw FISA data. But at the end of the day, one, there are problems with that system. And two, these people, everything we've just talked about, these are these are searches or, or queries of, of the raw information, which means no U.S. person's information has been redacted. The trick here is really if the government wanted to be particularly privacy protective, they could, it could institute rules like what you're describing. There could be a largely automatically implemented rule that says basically if this is one person in the United States, it's not going into the same database as everything else. But in fact, despite what the government likes to assert publicly, that connectivity, the outside the border to somebody inside the border, is actually one of the features for at least some of the government uses of this information. And once again, it really brings us back to, in every other context, to look at this person's email, you would need a warrant. And at this point, you don't even need to believe that there is a crime occurring. The government just has to think that the person you're talking with has foreign intelligence information. And there are huge swaths of the United States that have robust connections to family, communities in other countries. It's actually pretty disturbing to think about how, practically speaking, that impact is likely to be felt, because it's almost certainly going to be disparately impacting communities of color, immigrant communities, among others. 
And just just to be clear, I mean, we're not just talking about metadata, right? We're talking about contents of emails. We're talking about contents of text messages. Anything else I'm missing? No, it's a great it's a great point. Section 702 is what I described as like full take authority. So as you said, it is everything that a provider. So so mechanically, maybe I should, I should do this for a moment. Mechanically, the way this works is the government at the beginning goes and says to the FISA court, we want to use Section 702 to look into counter espionage. So one second, the FISA court, for those who don't know, is what exactly? So the FISA is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act from 1978. It's been modified a lot since then, including by things like the Patriot Act. FISA itself produced or established what we call the FISA court or FISC, which is a court that reviews these applications that are submitted by the government under FISA. And it's a unique court because it hears only from the government which is usually not the best way to get good law. And two, all of its proceedings are secret, with the exception of some amount of declassification that happens months to years later. And that's not, again, a great way to do oversight, frankly, but it is the system we have today. Now, when the government wants to use Section 702, each year it goes before the FISA court and gets what we call certifications for various uses of Section 72, like I said, investigating espionage. And again, it doesn't mean they have to believe that everybody who they're going to target with Section 702 is engaged in espionage. It's just that that's the broader purpose for which an investigation might be getting conducted. On the other side of that, on the other side of getting that certification, the government has, at this point, 246,000, I think is the almost exact number, targets. And then each of those targets could be a person or a group of people. And each of those entities would have some number of identifiers underneath. So your phone number, your email address, et cetera. And at the end of all of that, the government will provide this list of tasked selectors, the, the technical term, to companies like Google or Yahoo and say, I want everything you have that involves this person or selector email address, skipping a couple of weeds there, but it is certainly everything that that provider has on you is going to be provided to the government and in turn gets searched through with what we call these backdoor searches. These U.S. person queries is what the government calls them. We call them backdoor searches because, again, in any other context, the government would need a warrant before looking at that information. And you mentioned one of the things we've been reporting on, a story from Tanya Riley came out asking you know, about how we've seen a lack of specific examples around where 702 has been valuable for law enforcement or the intelligence community. I think at a very high level, they've cited some examples. From your point of view, are there cases where this has been a material investigative tool the government has used to take down bad guys, arrest terrorists, whatever it is, that is showing value, at least for their purpose, right? Yeah, so it requires looking at this a little bit more granularly. I think the government has largely postured itself and tried to drive this debate as a straight, what we might call a straight reauthorization or straight sunset debate. The reality is, is that I think there's not a lot of question that the government views this as a very critical authority. They've made that pretty clear. They've declassified a fairly minimal amount of information to support that. But what is totally absent, and really at this point very conspicuously absent, is 
evidence from the government that these backdoor searches that we were just talking about, this kind of way that 702 turns back around and becomes a way to pierce the Fourth Amendment, that any of those are useful. And in fact, your reporter, Tanya Riley, was was actually the only reporter to catch this, but one of the members of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board was talking at a Netroots panel, I believe, and said that there had been minimal to negligible information provided to support the intelligence value of these backdoor searches. So nonetheless, despite that, just to be clear, these backdoor searches are conducted hundreds of thousands of times per year, millions of times over the course of 702's existence. And it's actually quite remarkable that the government has yet to provide any information that that use of Section 702 information, that that warrantless combing through it for information about Americans is useful. And so that's important. So there's clearly like the way the way you're talking about some warrantless searching happening. Americans are getting wrapped up. There are these backdoor searches. Have there been real harms on the people who have been targets of these searches? Yeah. So this is where the most recent transparency reporting becomes very disturbing. So like I mentioned earlier, the most recent declassified FISA court opinion makes some pretty disturbing news. The idea that donating to a member of Congress could make you more likely to have your information warrantlessly obtained, warrantlessly accessed by somebody at the FBI, each of those is a discrete harm to privacy. Each one of those instances threatens an American. That's just one instance, though. And that is both a reflection of how much information is being sifted through and also how the government really treats the searches themselves. Those 19,000 people were all searched as part of one batch query. That's not the way surveillance or investigation is conducted in the United States or shouldn't be. But let's move to something a little bit more familiar to some is our protests around George Floyd's murder. We don't know the details, but we know there were 133 different instances where an FBI agent, again, unlawfully under the FBI's own rules, right? Like we're not saying, this is not me saying unlawfully or wrongly compared to what we believe should be the law, which is significantly higher than where it is now. But under the FBI's own rules, 133 instances of an FBI agent looking for basically dirt on people who were arrested at Black Lives Matter protests. Now, there have been some reforms put in place, right? To prevent that? There have been. I'm going to combine one of your earlier questions about, like, couldn't you filter this or, or things in that nature? This is ridiculous to say now at, at this point. But one reform that had been discussed at a long time was just making it so that an FBI agent needed to opt in to searching this information. And there was a decade of people fighting for that reform, which isn't a huge success from a privacy perspective. But eventually, the FBI's compliance violations made it an inevitable necessity from from the FBI's political calculus, right? So they started to require that you have to opt in to get this information. So before that change, there were 3.4 million queries in one year of U.S. person information, 3.4 million backdoor searches. After it, it dropped to hundreds of thousands. Now, is that an improvement to some extent? However, again, each of these are pretty serious violations of people's expectation of privacy. So having 200,000 in a year, which is the new number, is still deeply problematic. So before this most recent set of violations that we found, there were more, including surveillance of or a backdoor search on a sitting member of Congress, on a local political party, on two individuals, apparently just because they were of Middle Eastern descent, and current and former U.S. government officials, journalists, and political commentators, okay? So these are all also people who were wrongfully searched on 
in Section 702. And so some of these produce some internal reforms. And they're the ones like what we were describing. But at no point did we get to, does the government start requiring a warrant? In any event, if we give all of the credit possible to these internal reforms, and just to be clear, I don't think anybody should, but even if we give them all of their credit, what we're still looking at are over 8,000 unlawful queries, backdoor searches per year. That's the government's own numbers. That's their own transparency reporting. That's their own compliance rate or non-compliance rate mapped out across just the volume of surveillance that's occurring here. And that's dozens of unlawful searches a day of people's communications. So there have been some reforms. But honestly, they really pale in comparison to the number of problems that have come to light over the decade that the government's been really obstinate in implementing even the the most bare imaginable improvements. So, I mean, the reason you've been so focused on this, as we've mentioned, this is going to sunset at the end of the year. It could be renewed. There could be reforms put in place to deal with some of the things you're talking about. Can you give me a sense of what you're working on in Congress, how that's going, where you think this debate is going to go, which we expect it to really probably flare up in the fall, right, with, you know, a sort of more vigorous debate in Congress? Yeah, just kind of give me a picture of uh, what you're working on around this. Yeah, so really, I've been doing this work for about 10 years, and at this point, every minute of it feels like it was leading up to this fight, if I'm being honest. This is really unlike any other surveillance fight that I have seen or expect to see. And you're right that come fall, this is going to be impossible to avoid. But frankly, we already see a lot of movement on the Hill. There's been a lot of really good coverage and a lot of debate. And I'm going to skip past the status, the current state of affairs, just because it's almost more interesting where this is inevitably going to go. So the pro-reauthorization members of Congress, which are generally folks on the intelligence committees, they have made clear to the administration that 702 is not getting reauthorized as is. There's basically currently a standoff there between those actors who, again, are generally anti-reform, generally pro-surveillance, historically to a mind-boggling degree, but in any event, even today. And the administration, which is basically saying, we're okay with cosmetic reforms, maybe. And that's just detached. It is a bit mind-blowing that the administration appears to still be in that posture because every single person with any position of power has made it clear that there is no path to a, a straight reauthorization, as we might refer to it, or a clean reauthorization. And of course, privacy advocates are much closer to calling for a straight sunset of this authority than straight reauthorization. With that said, the folks who are, let's say, seriously engaging in this debate from the political landscape, there's room to talk, I suppose. But really, it's there's room to talk in the sense that the Judiciary Committees have also made clear that no straight reauthorization is possible. But people like Chairman Jordan have said, I just want Section 702 to completely sunset. And that opens up the space for more conversation than was possible in previous years. So what this is, I think, almost certainly going to become is a debate not just about these critical Section 702-focused reforms, but a much broader conversation, a much broader congressional debate that's very long overdue about warrantless surveillance of Americans generally. Let me pause there because I'd like to dive into it more, but I can see you've got a question. Well, yeah, I'm curious about what you think the substance of that debate will be based on what we've seen from this Congress, right? It's interesting to me that you have people on the right and the left agreeing on 
702 wanting to sunset or at least wanting serious, meaningful reform. But a lot, I feel like you've got this contingent in Congress who's going to use this debate for talking about other things, FBI surveillance on Trump supporters or that sort of conversation. Do you think that there's going to be meaningful debate about privacy, surveillance reforms like that, which is fantastic? Maybe I'm a little bit less hopeful that there will be an intelligent discussion about this in Congress, given what we've seen recently. It's a great question. So what I find most interesting about this is I think the people who are maximizing the chances that it is, let's say, a not intelligent debate around Section 72 are the people who are pushing it toward a straight reauthorization debate, which is the administration. If there's a fight between the White House and Jim Jordan, it's just another Tuesday and maybe they'll win. I, I can't believe they would play a coin toss trick with that context, but that's the only way I can describe what I'm seeing right now. But there are a really, there, there's a very sizable contingent in both chambers on both sides of the aisle that see this opportunity. And really it can be summed up as if you want Section 702 back in any form at all, we are having a broader conversation than we've ever had. And I do think we will get there. The folks who want to see it reauthorized are going to absolutely need to engage in that debate in good faith, or we are going to see, maybe we get back, maybe maybe the entire country gets backed into a corner where it's just straight, straight up or down. And in that case, certainly Demand Progress and a number of other organizations from the ACLU to Americans for Prosperity are going to say, no, that's not acceptable. And I do not believe the White House can win that fight. Are you pushing for reauthorization with reform? or straight up sunset, where does demand progress fall on that? Yeah, so what, what we're aiming for is that opportunity that I described, that window that I'm not sure has existed before and may not again. Now, so let's be specific. That is a debate that says Congress is going to establish what we call the exclusive means of conducting the surveillance. And I'll skip the weeds there. But the short version is, is basically, if you've ever talked to a surveillance skeptic or critic who thought, look, if we stop it here, it's going to happen over here, you're squeezing a balloon. It turns out there is actually a legislative way to deal with that. And that's what exclusive means is. It says you're only getting this pursuant to these enumerated authorities, right? And if Congress, firstly, I think if Congress votes on that, I think that privacy wins, one. And two, we know that it would actually meaningfully address this stuff. It wouldn't go somewhere else if the law says the only way you can get this information is through a, routes A, B, and C. There's no secret door D for the government to walk through, which there currently is. And so just to give you a sense specifically about what needs to come into this conversation for reauthorization to be possible politically, palatable to privacy advocates, whatever, however you might want to describe that. One is surveillance that happens under Executive Order 12333. And the other is this practice that the government is increasingly engaging in, which is just buying information about people in the United States without a court order from data brokers. And these are two massive threats to Americans' privacy really hard to overstate. They are also exactly the, you squeeze the balloon here and it's going to come out over here kind of programmatic authorities that really basically mean that if Section 702 is all Congress deals with here, the government will have the ability to bypass it in large portions. There is not necessarily a way to establish, there's not really a way to fix Section 702 so much that it really restores privacy enough to make it worth reauthorization. But 
if Congress can get to voting on, can the government buy this information from data brokers or similar information from data brokers? And we're talking about things like location information. We have a memo now from the Defense Intelligence Agency. This actually is more than a year old, but the Defense Intelligence Agency concluded behind closed doors until it was revealed by investigative reporting that it could buy bulk location information from data brokers. That swallows almost everything Congress has ever done on these questions of surveillance. We need to get to that level of conversation. That's what the kind of informed, robust debate around privacy is and the opening that's in front of us. We have to get there. But it is hard to see how any 702 bill moves without facing that issue head on. And that's what we're working toward. Well, I look forward to that conversation. I'm hopeful that it is a rigorous and serious and thoughtful and intelligent one. I know you've got to run. We're sort of out of time, but we will have you back on the show if you'll come back to talk about that in the fall, because I think this is a big topic we'll be covering. It's clearly something that is very significant in the whole privacy, surveillance, security conversation that we write about a lot. So thanks so much, Sean, for giving us the download and a bit of a preview for what you can expect coming up in Congress this fall. Absolutely. I appreciate it. And and I'll, I'll just one last contextual point. The last FISA reauthorization was uh, a 2020-2019 fight. And the actually congressional leadership's opposition to allowing members to vote on, on meaningful reform was really what precipitated Section 215 of the Patriot Act, uh, like I said, another authority that needed reauthorization, to sunset entirely. And the politics of this are pretty astonishing. And I think it will I know it lends support to the idea that this is a fight that a lot that privacy champions on and off the hill have a lot of leverage going into. Overall, you're hopeful, right? You're hopeful that something meaningful will change that will be on the side of privacy. I believe it is possible. And we and others are doing our damnedest to make it reality. I am hopeful that that is the outcome, in part because I hope we aren't stuck with the kind of debate you described, which may be more bereft of substance and meaningful protections for people in the United States. We have no choice but to fight for that debate. And in the absence of that, it's going to be, frankly, a dumpster fire, which is what we saw in 2019 and 2020. And so those of us who are trying to figure out something new here. We have our work cut out for us, but I do believe it's possible, and I am optimistic about that. All right. Thanks again, Sean. Thanks so much, Mike. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Google. Together, Mandiant with Google Cloud helps public sector organizations become more secure from cyber attacks. Visit cloud.google.com slash security for threat reports, resources, and security best practices. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends, your mom or your dad, because you know they're probably going to get hacked if you don't. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.